Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Join Mason and Jake each week as they try new wines and discover how much government is in your drink. Welcome to another exciting episode of Tasting Anarchy. I'm your host, Jacob Lindsay, and as always, I'm joined by Mason Joseph. And today we've got a exciting episode for everybody. It may be interrupted briefly here and there because my wife is at the grocery store, so I'm on puppy patrol again. Yeah. Uh, so I'm kind of keeping one ear not in the headphones so that I can hear if they're if they decided that they're going to start summoning demons again and making <laughs> making those evil growling noises. But besides that. that uh, that our Shiba Inus are known to do. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, they are known to do that. But like, I I can usually tell the difference if it's just like Belzebub, you know, that's one thing. But if it's like mm. full on the devil, then I'm like, well, <laughs> I got to get out there. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, funny. yeah, they're 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 a lot of fun. But I'm just I'm a little bit worried actually about the bigger one, not the not the puppy. And so, yeah. uh, but we did we did while uh, we were. My wife and I were also at Six Flags earlier today because it's mm-hmm. close to where we are. Uh, I had time to talk a little bit with Mason and do some show prep. So yeah. I think we've got some pretty cool articles. But before we get into the articles, what are you sipping on tonight, Mason? I am sipping on a Williamsburg winery, so local to Hampton Roads. Or Well, I don't think Williamsburg is in Hampton Roads, but Williamsburg probably disagrees. Um, Williamsburg's winery, 2018 Vignet or however you properly pronounce that, but that's the way we've decided it's pronounced. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the 2018, I've, I've definitely done one or at least one of their vignettes on the show before. I think I did the Wessex or the Wexus Wessex one, possibly, um, Wessex hundred. And I may have done their Alburino. I don't know for sure. Um, really should look at the notes ahead of time, but the 1499 at Kroger, um, 12.8% 12.8% alcohol by volume, 3.65 pH, 7.56 gram liter TA, and 0.05 RS residual sugars. Now, they have a fact sheet about the 2017 one. Okay. The 2017 is less alcoholic, less, actually, I think it's more acidic, but the GL slash TA number mm-hmm. is like point. 812 and this is 7.56 so unless they switched the like yeah like it's 0.8.815 grams per liter uh ta and you neither the is that's the acid yeah um but this one is 7.56 which is supremely different um but what's really fun about this one is it like they tell you the vineyards it was harvested on the dates it was harvested. It's actually got the brick number, the bricks number on it too. Oh, cool. um, so like you know, part of it was harvested in tw- uh, twelve September, twenty nine August, six September, eighteen. So like this is a really like young wine. It's barely a year old at this point. Like even from being harvested date. So it was bottled in twenty nine. Uh, April 29th, it was released August 29th, so about four months in bottle, it looks like. Um, pale golden in color. Um, my wife said, like, when she aerated it as she drew it across her tongue, it had, like, a sweet up front, or it seemed like it was, like, threatening to be very sweet. Um, but it actually kind of, it's not, it, you know, it's a pretty, not high acidity, but it's got some pretty good acidity to it. To me, it, it's really mainly apricot in the flavor, kind of a, 
um, a pineapple-y almost sweet in the smell. Um, but you know how like pineapple, it kind of smells sweet, but then like there's always kind of that like acid on the back end of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like that's what it seemed like to me. Um, but what's really cool is like the fermentation they, they talk about. It's like fermented in stainless on mosaic yeast for 38 days for part of the vineyard uh, sourcing. Uh, so the 91% of it was. Um, which is from the Corzette, Virginia. Then the Wessex, uh, which the Wessex 100 is the Williamsburg winery itself, uh-huh. uh, was fermented on stainless with Rhone uh, 46,000 yeast for 50 days. And then the Bent Mountain, or it's Bent MNT, which I'm assuming is a shortening for mountain, mm-hmm. um, was fermented in stainless with ICV OK, OKAY, all capitalized yeast for 30 days. So like they were fermented separately and mixed. Hmm. So really interesting on it. Um, apparently Virginia was very cold, very cold temperatures in January of 2018 and was just super wet pretty much the entire year and humid. Um, so to me, like I really kind of want to get another bottle of this. If you were, if you were somehow able to make it out in November, like we had been talking about, Mm -hmm. cause it, this is different. Okay. It, it's, you know, like, um, there's that episode of wine for normal people that Elizabeth was talking to that Virginia producer who's going to be in the event in November. Yeah. Um, and they were talking about just like, you know, Virginia is a hard place to grow at times. And obviously Texas is very hard too, but Virginia offers its own unique mm-hmm. challenges. And you can kind of see like in the, when they're talking about the vintage on these makers notes that it's like, yeah, this was hard. <laughs> like this was a hard wine to produce. Um, pale golden in color i'm really enjoying digging it um you know i i i generally i don't drink a wine on the show that i would say that i wouldn't recommend but like i can't recommend this one more highly it's it's really fun all right right on i might if i don't if i don't make it out maybe we can i can order one and we'll and get it to me because williamsburg wineries pick it pretty big and they'll probably ship i mean actually i think We've talked about this. I think actually direct from the wineries, you, they do still have to get permission, but pretty much they they can ship anywhere. I um, think most like most of the Virginia wineries mm-hmm. appear that they'll ship to Texas. Yeah. Um. In general, I think it's just like because I think it seems like the Virginia wineries and like have worked out some sort of deal with Texas. Oh, that could be. I mean, you know, they're both southern states, so yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. I would definitely, I'll definitely check it out because uh, it sounds sounds very good, and I do like Vignet. It's one of the one of the, although it's a growing number of whites that I like, but it, it's, <laughs> it was one of the yes. early whites that I was like, this is actually not too bad. Thanks to Nate. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Thanks to Nate. Uh, well, what I'm actually drinking tonight is a revisit of something I've already reviewed, and I tried to look up the episode for this, but I I can't recall what it was. This is one of the very first uh, last bottle wines wines I got. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten down to the point where I do still have quite a bit of wine left, but I think it it's all like doubles or whatever of other things that I've had mm-hmm. and have reviewed on the show. So as of now, with the exception of I think like one, maybe one bottle of wine, and I did mention on the show because I got it from that Angelita Vineyard, which is south of Dallas, mm-hmm. um, and I just didn't feel like drinking it today. I think <laughs> I think I've actually reviewed everything that I have currently. Mm-hmm. Now, fortunately, this week was the first week where temperatures like got below 80 in Texas. Okay. So I'll be receiving my 130 bottles of wine from Last Bottle Wine 
that's going to say, on hold. Are they going to round ship that? Like, ship part of it to you and then ship another part to you? Do you know? Well, there's two, there's two like, parts of it. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, what's cool about it is they'll, they'll either call or email you and ask you what you want to do. And I just told them, you can ship it all. I'll just, I'll put it in the rack or whatever. And I don't really, I don't have quite enough space for it, but I do have, I can just put the remainder under the bed or something like that, which mm-hmm. is not the proper way to store it. But, uh, you know, it's not going to last forever. So well, let's... I, I buy wine right now to drink. I don't buy it to keep indefinitely. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're, we're, we're not at the point where we're really seriously racking something. Mm-hmm. And even then, like, even if you did rack it correctly, like most of the way you're supposed to treat the wines you're going to do that with, you've got to really kind of st- yeah. stick on the temperature control. And like your wife likes it probably warmer than it should be. A lot of those should probably yeah. be at. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. Yeah. So now if people want to receive or to sign up with to, for Last Bottle Wines with a way to help the show, what can mm-hmm. they do? They can go to tastinganarchy.com and in the center of the page, uh, well, toward the bottom at the center, there's a link to Last Bottle Wines, which will give you a $10 credit at Last Bottle Wines, and it will give us a nice little kickback. Yeah. So uh, check that out. Some of our listeners have already done so, and they're very happy with it, and um, it, it helps us out quite a bit. I order tons of stuff from them and Mm -hmm. probably there's not a day that goes by that i don't like message mason and go look at this one look at this one and and it's always like oh i wish i hadn't already ordered like 130 bottles of something because i want this one now and 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 this is what's always funny to me is like so for people who don't realize jacob's level of knowledge sourcing i i that's the best way i can describe it Mm mm-hmm you can read about the bottle of wine and then you're remembering, oh yeah, like XYZ said XYP about this season with this vineyard or this growing region. Like the other day when you were, you sent me that uh, Cab Sob link. Oh yeah. Um, oh, the, Oak, the like, one for the Oakville? Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. And that year, because it was a 2014 Oakville. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Like I wish I, I wish I had gotten, I, 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 I don't. It's not that I wish that I had gotten it. I recognize that it was a great deal. Mm-hmm. It's from a subregion of Napa that I think is is very very good. Um, and it's actually the Cab Sauv they produce out of there is good enough that even Victoria likes it and appreciates it. Yeah. Um, but it's expensive, and and, and that's kind of the problem. We're not really the problem with it, but that's just one of the deals is that it's it's expensive and it, and a yeah. great great year for it too. But that's that's what I'm trying to point out to the listeners. Like, I had no idea why he was so excited about it. Now, again, like I, my level of wine enjoyment is like, oh, it's in the glass. I like drinking. <laughs> I like drinking <laughs> yeah. it, and I do like reading about it. I'm very interested in the, like, I'm very interested in the process of making wine. Yeah, in in those sort of things, but I don't taste the wine the same way you do because like i have such a nose smell issue well we do it's not even that like when when i took those classes about uh about when i took those classes about like how to hang on a second sure never mind that was just him pushing on the dog door so 
Uh, when I took those wine classes, one of the things they talk about in that is that people will think that they are not good tasters, not uh, at like for particular things. Like one of the things like they give you is these bitter strips and like the bitter strip, like I tasted, it, I was like, yeah, it's bitter, but it's like, it's not terrible. But there were people like on the verge of vomiting there. Mm-hmm. And, um, for me though, it, like I do actually like bitter flavors a lot. I, you know, I eat a lot of, you know, cabbage and that sort of type of thing mm-hmm. that, that are more bitter flavored. But it, it's, when she first did that, she was like, if you're not vomiting from this, then you're never going to be a great wine taster. <laughs> and we, and then she was like, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. Basically all this means is that like you taste wine differently. You're not going to, you're going to appreciate wines that maybe have a lot of bitter note in them more than the people who are throwing up because of the bitter, the bitter taste. Yeah. And <sighs> hang on. Well, I'll I'll yeah. talk while Jacob is sourcing dog problems. Right, right. <laughs> um, but like, so that that's what is always so interesting to me about wine itself, specifically, is people don't experience the wine the same way. So while I can quite often appreciate a more expensive bottle of wine, given the fact that I reference the peanut bottle of wine, Jacob and I reference it pretty conti- consistently. Um, as, a, as one of the best bottles of wine we've had, or at least one of the best bottles of wine I've had, even though Cab Sob isn't like my go-to go-to, but like we bring it up constantly. But that's one of the things that super impresses me about wine is everybody kind of sees it and feels it differently. Now, there are definitely people who, you know, will turn their nose up at two buck chuck, and I will generally do that as well because that's not the tasting experience that I'm generally wanting to have. It's generally oversweet and things like that, but I still recognize the work and effort that the people who made it put into it. I just may not want to drink it very often. Yeah, <laughs> Whereas, that's, yeah that's a good point. Yeah, and that's the thing is like I think a lot of the time you like because of your you and I are in different cycles in life at the moment, you know, being that I have kids I have a kid and you don't at the moment. So your disposable income is a little differently directed than mine. Not that you're mm-hmm. necessarily your disposable income is so much higher than mine. Mm-hmm. But like, that's the thing is where like, I still go in and go like, Oh man, $20 bottle of wine. Damn. Bring the bank tonight. You know, that sort oh, of yeah, thing. Yeah. Like it, but I'll routinely go like, Oh, I bought $80 two eighty $80 pairs of jeans from some guy on Reddit that don't, actually fit me all that well <laughs> like, yeah i just have to lose weight and i'll fit them <laughs> like you know the the classic like oh this wasn't a, a bad decision even then like you know i wasn't ripped off by the guy or anything like that i just i didn't fit the jeans the way i was hoping i would um but like that sort of thing whereas you know you buy a bottle a more expensive bottle of wine and that's just what it is but like it, you know that's what's so fun about wine is there's a price point and an enjoyment level for everybody, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I, you know, I don't often speak for you, Jacob, but like pretty positive that like in our world, there is no bad bottle of wine. There are wines that we don't care for. There are wines that we don't think are good representations of the, the varietal. Mm-hmm. But if you enjoy them, there's no derision from us. Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah. you know, we may not have been that way always in our life, and that might just be a, a level of maturity, but that also might be just because 
we have both so often been like, why don't you enjoy this thing that I enjoy immensely after, you know, 10 year, plus years of friendship going, yeah. like, why, why doesn't he like this? And then it's like, well, one, you, you taste things completely differently than I do. And, and I mean, like kind of talking out loud, not necessarily me thinking that way, mm-hmm. but like, that's the thing is just like, people are different and that's what makes life so fun is you you and I experience things in just completely different ways, but then we get to share those with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things about wine. Yeah. And you and I've talked about this once or twice before too, is that even things like where you had that wine or or Mm -hmm. beer or whatever Mm -hmm. is what changes a lot of it. So like one of the, like one of the cab francs, because I'm drinking cab franc tonight that, I've always been kind Spoiler of ch- alert. No. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> that I've been I've been chasing this for for cab francs for a long time. Hey, come here! Stop making noise. Hey, Papa's recording a show. Yeah. <laughs> come here. Uh, but uh, was that uh, Green Hill Winery cab franc from Northern Virginia mm-hmm. that I had with Nate and uh, Victoria went up with me. And it was like one of the first times that, since she had moved down with me where we took a trip and she like thoroughly enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And that was that was really cool. So it was a it was a trip that involved Nate. Who that's true. Yeah, exactly. It? And she you know she she likes Nate a lot. And yeah. who doesn't though? I mean he's a, he's a great guy. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, we went up there. We she liked his dad. His dad is a really unusual person and really cool. Um, yeah, his dad is his dad is one of those people that like. He is a very, very fun individual, but I can also see where, like, some people may not always have the nicest things to say about him. Well, yeah, he's de- he's definitely a, like, kind of in-your-face person, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but just, but genuine, and, we, and which yeah. I, I really appreciate in people in general. And, uh, yeah, we we had a great time up there, and, I, and we had this uh, cab franc that was on New Oak. And it was just super good, super delicate, super buttery. And ever since then, whenever I see a cab front come up, I'm like, oh, I want to try this. Because <laughs> you're chasing that. <laughs> well, exactly. And, and and what's cool about it, though, is I've, I've grown to appreciate other types of cab franc. Like, mm-hmm. you know, what they produce in France is awesome. Um, particularly, I think, the, I think the Loire, um, which I forever, it, early on in our show, I was calling Luray. But <laughs> oh, is that right? Is yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So Loire Cab Franc, I think, is a really, mm-hmm. really good bargain and very good. Mm-hmm. Um, there is actually even good Cab Franc coming out of Italy, which I believe that I did a comparison episode a long time ago on the on Cab Francs, and mm-hmm. I and I gave the Italian one the lowest level or whatever or the lowest tier. But like since then, I've had that same one again in other Italian Cab Francs and been like, actually, you know, there's other things going on here. It's not. It's not the Green Hill Winery that I was thinking of, but now that I've sort of set that aside and have more experience when it comes to tasting, mm-hmm. this gives other things. And this is kind of the same deal with this uh, Lang & Reed 214 Cab Franc, what I'm drinking tonight, uh, is I remember By having... 214, do you mean 2014? No, two, two, four, it's called 214. Oh, okay, the, yeah, okay. The name I, I understand now. That's the in the name. I thought that yeah. was just the way you were giving the year, and I was like, Yeah, well, the year's why? actually Yeah, the year's <laughs> actually 2015. Okay. Um, it's a Napa Valley Cap, or a Napa Valley uh, Cap Franc, 
Mm-hmm. It is very, very different than that one that I had in Virginia, very different than the ones from Loire. Um, it, it's just, it's a great Cab Franc, but just so different coming from Napa. And it's actually, there is a lot of similarity between this one and other Napa Cab Francs I've had. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's, um, just so everybody knows, it's 14% alcohol by volume. Like I said, it's Langen Reed 214 2015 Cab Franc. Uh, it's from Napa Valley. Uh, color-wise, it's uh, very, very dark. It's almost black, but then like there's when you pour it, there's like some bubbles, and on the edge, it's it's got this very dark purple flavor, which is kind of cool. Um, flavor or purple? Yeah, I mean it's an. No, ac- I, it's I an know. Accent. I know exactly yeah. what you mean. Which yeah. is that's what's so great about this. Yeah, like, yeah. It's like you're saying like a purple flavor. It's like yes, I know exactly. Right. Yeah. It's like that little purple accent on the on the mm-hmm. edges. Uh, smell-wise, blackberry jam, a little bit yeasty. Now, taste-wise, this is what makes this one a little bit different. Actually, very close to the Italian. It's uh, tannic. It's very hot, very acidic, light-bodied. So when I drink this one, it's not a relaxing, smooth Cab Franc from Virginia or from Loire. It's more of like a. It's it's more of a mouth punch. It's got that. Mm-hmm. It's it's that fruit. It's it's a lot of tannic. It's hot. It's acidic. It's it's you know, what like, I'm looking for in Cab Franc. Personally. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very good. It's different than a than a Cab Sauv in that it's got that lighter body and it's less less tannic, less grippy. But it's definitely mm-hmm. got that. So it's it's a great wine. But now that like as I've experienced more and like start separating these things out, yeah, this is this is the same grape, and it could even be the same clone for all I know. I don't. I have no idea. But uh, it. It just it is expressing something completely different from either from what the producers are doing or just from the terroir of the of the region in general. And, and that's the thing is like um, so twenty fifteen. I mean, yeah, I don't think the fires there. I don't think there were a lot of big big fires in you know California at the time um, that year. Mm-hmm. But you know that could be like playing a, an impact to like just. To, you know, there's so much that could be impacting That's this. That's true, yeah. Um, and, yeah. and actually, and what's interesting about this one, now I got this from Last Bottle Wine, so it was a lot less, but uh, right now you can actually get the 2013 of this at Total mm-hmm. Wine for $42. That's not bad. It's not bad at all. The 2015 is not available anywhere that I can find. Um, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a couple of online retailers that don't ship. Uh, to Texas that have it. Uh, I got it from Last Bottle Wine, as I said, uh, and they're they're pricing it at a lot higher in the sixties for the two the twenty fifteen. So I don't know what the difference is between the twenty thirteen and the twenty sixteen for this particular mm-hmm. one. Uh, and there's also the same producer Lang and Reed. They produce a different Cab Franc that is in the twenty dollar range. So hmm. twenty to twenty five dollars. It just depends on where you're looking. So I'm not again not sure what the difference is when it comes to that. But I'll go ahead and and just um, say like this one in particular is from Napa Valley. Uh, two fourteen is in two one four, mm-hmm. and uh, it like I said fourteen percent fourteen point five percent alcohol by volume. What it says on the back is this one hundred percent Cabernet Franc originates from the Sioux. I'm going to say sugar loaf. Sugar loaf? I'm retarded. This is sugar loaf. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so sugar Sugar loaf mountain vineyard situated in the uh, (laughs) southeastern hill of Napa Valley. (laughs) 
the it says the E N T A V clone, so Entov clone two fourteen mm-hmm. of the Loire Valley. Uh, oh, there that's interesting. Go. Yeah, there we go. So of the Loire. How did Valley. you not read this ahead of time? <laughs> well, you know what? I probably did, and I just didn't make the connection. Um, and then, and then you just sub subtly peppered all this Lore Valley talking. I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and maybe that's what it was. Maybe I was look how good I am it. at comparing things. Well, this this I would say is very different than Loire, though. Loire is a much, uh, it is a colder region in France, so it's gonna mm-hmm. it's gonna have higher acidity. Mm. But I don't know what this part of California is like all year long, so maybe it is similar. But it, this is this is a much more. This is this is how I would characterize California wine as like a little bit more aggressive when it comes to that, but refined in its own way. Mm-hmm. Not not wild like the way like Texas is, where Texas is Texas can be real hot. It can be, um, you know, it's it's hot. It's aggressive. It's got a lot of those characteristics, but it's not as like refined as the California wines. It's more wild. Yeah, well, it's like Virginia wine. It's, yeah, the, there's there's something in like. That's something about the producers of the wine in those regions, too, mm-hmm. where, like, Virginia is starting to get a lot of, like, old-world professional winemakers coming mm-hmm. in, like, second sons and stuff like that. Pe- you know, people who may not necessarily have the full access to do yeah, what or they that, want to do. Yeah, and the other thing I've heard a lot, like, Texas gets this a lot, is that it's there's... it. It's a very crowded market in Europe, and mm-hmm. and it's also a very highly regulated market. So a lot of the people who want to do something different just don't want to stay there. Yeah, and a lot of times they could do something different, mm-hmm. but it because they won't get commercial access the yeah. same way because of the perceived snobbery. They sure. they don't try, and then like when you come out to you know Virginia and things like that, just being a European winemaker gets oh, yeah. you a lot of street cred now a lot of them are quickly catching up with the idea that no just because you're european doesn't mean you know what the heck you're doing mm-hmm. but so like there's a lot of quality makers who are coming out and going like no no, no i just want to do something different i want to be in some place that will uh, let me just mm-hmm. try at mm-hmm. least so yeah yeah that's yeah. a good point yeah so i i highly recommend this cab franc i i recommend cab franc in general uh, and I'm happy that I that I'm revisiting this now. This has been several months, I think, since I had the other bottle of this. I think I only had two, but it's very possible I had four and just forgot the two in the middle. <laughs> yeah, so I, I definitely will recommend Cab Franc to those who can get a hold of it. Um, I always enjoy it. Now, um, on to interesting news. Sure, uh, but not not news that necessarily anyone will care about. That isn't us. Uh, so speaking of Green Hill. So mm-hmm. my cousin, who is the oldest male cousin on m- my mom's side, mm-hmm. and then there's me. Like it's me, myself, and then and some. Then there's a bunch of male cousins below that. So like I'm the second oldest male cousin. So his, I think, thirty seventh birthday just happened. Okay. And apparently he's a member at Green Hill Winery. Oh, cool. Okay. So, like, he and his boyfriend uh, went out to Green Hill Winery, and apparently, like, they then went to, like, a distillery in the area that was oh, doing absinthe. That we d- so, we went there as well when yeah. I was up there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we, interesting. Yeah, so, yeah, it's in it's in Middleburg. There's, like, there's a there's a distillery in there. I, tr- I didn't try anything except for the absinthe because I don't really like most liquor, but I do like yeah. absinthe. So... 
which is weird. Like, but I do. I like licorice, and absence is, yeah. has a very strong licorice flavor. Yeah. So they went out to uh, Green Hill Wine. Green Hill apparently, you know, had a good time, and he. Was, I asked him what was his favorite winery wines out there, and both of them had like. I'm going to say like Diablo, but like it wasn't that, but yeah. you know, like they, they were names that were not indicative of what they were. Mm-hmm. So, but I think they were red blends. Um, cause we, apparently you know my what? cousin is we into might, red blends. We might've actually talked about that distillery because there's a, there's a, there's a craft brewery on one side and there's a distillery mm-hmm. on the other, but there's this weird law that like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the horseshoe one. Yeah. Yeah. And they have to like, you have yeah. to like walk, you have to walk across to the distillery, but it's in the same building, but they have to be separated by a certain number of feet. Mm-hmm. It's like a really bizarre thing. Yeah. So his, his were mythology or superstition um, were the ones he liked at Green Hill. Uh, okay. Apparently, he's a member out there. So cool. At at some point, I'm going to try to um, like arrange a day where my daughter spends the day with my mom and my dad, and then maybe meet my cousin and his boyfriend over at Green Hill or something like that. Um, that's that's where I envisioned yeah. that like we would meet Howie Snowden up there because he lives yeah. pretty near there. That would be cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, really fun and interesting there. So that was just kind of one of those like weird coincidences. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, that is that weird coincidence. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Well, you want to get into articles? Let's do plugs real quick. Okay. Um, so everybody, you can follow us, tastinganarchy.com, tastinganarchy on Twitter, uh, Facebook, and Reddit. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Facebook, um, I hope this person doesn't mind, but we had a like from somebody in Finland. Um, so, hello, Maddie. Um, send us a like or a comment. Well, you've already sent us a like, but send us a comment or something like that on Facebook. Um, if you hear this, uh, you know, we always, uh, well, I'm obsessed with Finland, but <laughs> that's just me. Um, so then you could follow Childerberg, Childerberg on Twitter, which is Jacob's hijinks and show. Uh, there also on facebook also at childerberg.com also childerberg on twitter uh you can send us an email at tastinganarchy at gmail.com um and then also listen to the friends against government podcast you know there are partners in crime with uh childerberg we have been they have both been on our show you have been on their show multiple times make up the fact that i've not been on their show (laughs) right Uh, so yeah, yeah, and also uh, coming up another Childerberg attendee, <coughs> Rolo. I will be on the Rolo and Slappy show very oh, soon. Fantastic. Uh, which by the time this comes out, it may have been in the past. I don't know what their release schedule is, but I'll be oh. on. I'll be on their show tomorrow talking about cryptocurrencies. Oh, so you're talking to them on what would be Monday our time? That's right. Yep. Yep. Oh, cool. Uh, yep, about yeah, uh, that'll be fun. About crypto skepticism. Mm, yes, and and my my evolution on that as well because like now that I'm actually understanding the programming part of it a little bit more, I'm still a little bit skeptical of the currency portion of it. And then there's things I wanted to talk to Rolo about because I I do think he's like a quote unquote true believer. Like there's a lot of stuff where I, I'm going like yeah, yeah, I think you're making assumptions just because you like it. And mm-hmm. and there are certain things like in the in the Bitcoin standard which I've recently read. Uh, I think there's certain assumptions in there as well that are that may be true, but mm. they're not necessarily true. Yeah, I think I think you'll do a good job representing the tasting anarchy Bitcoin um, 
skepticism front, mm-hmm. um, as we'll say. So, but yeah. So yeah. Also, Childerberg, if you don't know, mm-hmm. is an annual event in Texas with that we put on with Friends Against Government. Um, this year it's going to be in Austin. Well, this year by 2020 standards, yeah, right, is going to be in Austin at some municipal park that I'm never going to bother to learn the name of. So M- Emma Long, Emma Long Metropolitan Park. Metropolitan. See, yeah. I can't even get the metropolitan part. I want it to be the municipal because that's what it is. Uh, but 23rd through the 26th. So we are going to have an overlap with the Libertarian National Convention. So if you're going to be in Austin for that, you know, people like possibly Tom Woods or possibly Bob Murphy mm-hmm. and uh, you want to come out and hang out with us, uh, we have several cool confirmed but not confirmed uh guests coming out yeah coming out there we can confirm nikki p is going to come out and hang out with us at least for some of that time because nikki and his wife are delegates mm-hmm. so at least nikki's going to be out there so it'd be great to meet him in person so if you don't listen to ta- uh sounds like liberty give him a shout or listen he also has like a thousand other podcasts because i don't know he's just so prolific <laughs> yeah he is i mean he's a prolific yeah. prolific Pod- podcaster yeah, somebody who's been in the movement for all of, like, two and a half years, but, like, is super, super well-dedicated to it, so definitely give them a listen, and his wife is very fun to talk to, mm-hmm. um, and then we have more people coming. Now, we have a newsletter that we are going to somehow put out monthly from the rest of the year going forward, hopefully, uh, where we'll tell you things about that, and if you want to help us fund the event, you can purchase shirts at com. There are exclusive shirts. Pick them up. Uh, supplies are limited. Yep. All right. Uh, and so, and um, actually, I have the new oh. that new logo, so I might be yeah. I might be taking the old shirt down and and doing stickers or whatever. Uh, all right, but yeah, you're right. Article, article next. Yes. So uh, something that you and I, well, you you live in California briefly. I live in California <laughs> a long time, but mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that comes up quite frequently on this show because wine is such a big industry in California and it's you know what it's the largest U.S. producer of wine mm-hmm. and uh, but something that's come up a lot is um, fire damage on wineries and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll go ahead and go. I'll just go through the this the the main article that we're going to be talking about, and we have branches coming from this article. But I'll go. I'll give the summary of the main one. Uh, this is out of Decanter Magazine. the The article's title is uh, "What Mass Power Outages Mean for California Wineries." It's by uh, Jess Lander, uh, which I think we've done an article by her from Decanter before, but I don't recall. Um, I she, think so. Yeah, her picture looked familiar. Uh, so PG&E is one of three regional monopolies in California. They provide power um, to California for the majority of California. There's there's two others. I don't recall what they're called. And I think actually one of the articles has it, but it's one in San. There's one in San Diego, and then there's like a Central California one. Yeah, yeah. So there. So anyways, it's a state granted monopoly. The company produces power. Uh, PG&E, along with these other the other two, has uh, begun begun coordinating. Temporary mass power shutoffs in Northern California. Well, I guess the other two aren't in Northern California, so that doesn't matter for them. Uh, in Northern California, in response to "quote unquote" extreme weather, mm-hmm. um, the conditions are worrisome because in 2017, mass wildfires in California were started by PG&E power lines uh, due Believe to. Believe to been. PG&E is admitted to it, so I I don't. I don't know what the the I don't know what the evidence is for that, but PG&E 
in we'll get into this later on, but in their most recent bankruptcy said, yeah, we did this and the liabilities are going to be so high that we need to declare bankruptcy. Yeah, I think I think what they technically said, and I'm only saying this from a technical standpoint, is they believe that mm-hmm. it was the cause. I personally am of the opinion that that there is some. Um, I'll get my tasting or uh, friends against government hat on. Okay. I believe there is some conspiracy stuff. Conspiracy shenanigans. Yeah. There. Okay. All I, right. I believe part of it is. There's a push to basically destroy modern civilization through the idea of like ending like fossil fuels and those sort of things. And I think part of that is they're they're starting to finally get into the um, power companies because there are several nuclear power plants in California that were shut down that could be reactivated. Oh, yeah. That wouldn't require such long-distance transmission of power to some of these cities. Yeah, well, you know, I used to be able to see from the hill behind my house, uh, Rancho Seco, which has yeah. uh, been shut down, I think, since the, either the early 90s or late 80s. But Rancho Seco's always been – I I might be speaking out of my ass here, but I'm pretty sure that it's always been maintained because there's still uh, storage of waste on site. Mm-hmm. And that – like apparently it doesn't take very much to get that one going again because they've been still paying to maintain it. Yeah, I think the talk has been always about reactivating Rancho Seco. Yeah. And at least I think one other, but I may be incorrect there. But that's the thing is like, so in my opinion, this is a lot of this is geared toward getting people used to the idea that power is not consistent okay that that I, that I could I could believe that for sure because it does seem like a very strange and also like we'll, I'll get into it more in the article we'll, we'll get into it after I've summarized yeah. it because well, there there is some weird stuff about it because like people seem like oddly okay with it yeah and so that's where the the other thing I would say is I would almost be okay with this if this was like an Elon Musk push yeah to get solar panels on homes so people could be grid independent. Well, like, we'll get we'll get into that as well because that's <laughs> yeah. that's one of the comments I wanted to talk about, or one of the ideas I thought about too. Because we'll get into like hypothesizing a little bit about what uh, stateless energy would be like. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyways, but back back to the article. So, eight hundred thousand customers have been impacted by the shutoffs, and um, there's been several wine regions, including Napa, Sonoma, Mendocino, and Santa Cruz. Now, it hasn't been continuous shut off from the entire thing, but some parts of all of these regions have been without power for up to five days. Uh, in some areas, um, oh, no, I was reading that's the five-day power shutoff. Uh, as a result, many of the wineries and vineyards have purchased or rented generators to keep their operations going. Uh, some wineries, Some wineries have temporarily closed their closed or partially closed their facilities uh, and many wineries have moved their harvest dates to different dates because if you harvest it and you don't have either the refrigeration or the equipment to process it then you're stuck with a bunch of rotten grapes mm-hmm. so they, there is a little bit of a concern now the person they quoted in the article said well he's not super concerned because they're they're harvesting red at this point they've harvested most of their white already and the white that they have left, they, they do dry whites, so it's not that big of a deal. They'll just be higher in alcohol. Um, but, you know, this is this is changing people's practices, and they are having to adapt to the idea that uh, 
power is not going to be available to them the way that we expect it to be available to us. Yeah, and I will point out, while he's not worried about it, remember the 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 law we were talking about in Nebraska in regard to your sister, mm-hmm. where they were talking about changing the alcohol content laws in yeah. like taxing? Right. Like, that could be a huge deal. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, if, if that's how... If that's how California did their uh, taxes, it could be a major, major imposition. Well, and, and, and it's the thing is, like, California is a huge export market. It doesn't matter if California is the. That's true. Yeah, because like yeah. your 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 end customer is being shafted. So like your crazy California policies. Yeah. Well, and, and are there, your end customer. There, the the other thing about this too, and and I wasn't really planning to get into this too much, is that. I didn't put this in the summary, but there was like one of the guys that they interviewed said that he is he runs a a custom crush operation, which is uh, basically they have all the equipment to crush grapes and put it into make it the juice and get it ready for fermentation. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, they cannot afford to be shut down. So rather than being shut down, like he actually gave the example, one of the batches that he was crushing and putting into bottles or putting into fermentation was forty thousand dollars worth of grapes. Yeah, which I went ahead and looked it up because I didn't know this site, but uh, it's the uh, Becker Stoffer George uh, Becker Stoffer Gorge, Gorges Three is what the region or the the vineyard is called. Mm. Um, I went up and looked up some because they didn't say specifically what producer it is that's, that has forty thousand dollars worth of fruit. But like I was looking up grape uh, bottles of wine that have the grapes from this this uh, vineyard, mm-hmm. and they go for ninety nine hundred twenty dollars a bottle. Yeah, and so these are these are expensive expensive wines. And so, anyways, what he said is he's like, look, I rented this generator. It cost me ten thousand dollars a month to rent, but his offset is he's like, I have one crush that's going to happen it happened one day and it was forty thousand dollars worth of grapes i can't i can't shut down and i can't yeah. let forty thousand dollars worth of grapes rot and that's a big big deal so you know what the name of his uh, crushing operation was yeah it's called uh sugar loaf sugar loaf cru- oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm drinking. I'm drinking something from that. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, That's so weird. Okay. That's why I was surprised. Like, and you know, so the funny thing is, you said you were retarded for not knowing how to pronounce sugar loaf. Yeah, I read that four times before I figured out it was just sugar loaf. Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't some esoteric pronunciation that it was just sugar loaf yeah. so like i didn't want to say anything because i figured you'd get into this. oh that's so funny that's so that's so <laughs> funny because like, i i didn't i didn't, I didn't both morons. yeah we are we are i didn't i didn't uh make the connection until now because yeah sugar loaf crush but yeah this uh this 214 uh 214 that i'm drinking is uh sugar loaf crush i guess so well quite possibly i mean yeah like, well, it says, he's, it says he's here not on the, the only cr- yeah. crush operation in sugar loaf well that's true sure. and it says actually on the back of this it says the sugar loaf mountain vineyard so mm. I don't know if it's if it's related to it or if it's just Sugarloaf is the, is the subregion like a small town or the mountain right there or whatever so they yeah. just call it that. But that's so funny. Uh but yeah, so like, you know, that's that's a big offset and then they they had other people like the last guy that they interviewed in the article we kind of discussed it a little bit. He was just like, "Look, I I'm just going to push back my harvest date till later when when this stuff comes up." And um there was also now this is a pretty big you actually know how to pronounce this guy, and I—I I don't know if I do ever, but it's—is it Mondavi? 
I think so, yeah. Yeah, Robert Mondavi, like I guess they just shut down their tasting room because they were like, look, we're not gonna we're not gonna dedicate power to this. But there are there are despite like the the popularity of Napa and Sonoma and and Mendocino and Santa Cruz that these are all these areas. It's like a lot of the producers there, they are kind of uh, hand to mouth on, on this type of stuff. They do need people to come and tour. Mm-hmm. And if they're shut down for five days, that's five days worth of people's vacation time that they could be there trying and buying wines. And if they can't afford the generator to keep it open, or if the generator just ruins the experience for a lot of people, because I mean, you and I remember this back when uh, what was that big storm that happened when you and I were well, you were uh, freshman year in high school. I was in eighth grade, I think. And Actually, like, I think it was junior in high school. I think you were in tenth grade. If oh, that's that might the be what I'm thinking about. Yeah, there was there was that big storm. And we were out without power for like a week. Yeah, like in, in was, parts of Virginia Beach. Yeah, parts of Virginia Beach were some of them were out for two to three weeks. Mm. Because, like, one had, like, a serious generator piece fail. Like, this one weird esoteric part destroyed. And then it took forever to get back in stock. Well, I I remember our neighborhood. It was just obnoxious. We we still had Toby at the time. And she's Mm -hmm. afraid of every loud noise. Or she was um, afraid of every loud noise. And the entire neighborhood was just, like, this loud generator noise. Yeah, exactly. It's just this throb of generator. Yeah, yeah, and, like, you know, we didn't have a generator, so we just were like, whatever, and let's eat everything in the refrigerator, and there's, you know, five kids in my family, so eating everything in the refrigerator is not a big deal. Um, <laughs> two, two minutes later, oh, crap. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're in food oh, energy. <laughs> well, I remember we, we, we were eating, like, we had to get out the camp stove and cook on the back the back porch with, uh, what's that What's that gas that you have to, like, pressurize to cook with using camp stoves? Is that butane? I would have said propane, but maybe butane? Yeah, I'm not sure what it is, but like those those little camp stoves, so we had to get that mm-hmm. out. We ate Top Ramen for like three days. And I'm surprised you guys didn't have a charcoal grill. That's interesting. We didn't back then. Like, we had just moved to Virginia. So Okay, okay. Yeah, so, we, well, maybe we hadn't just moved. Maybe we had been there about a year, but we just didn't have that much stuff at the house. We still were kind of moving in. And I, I think maybe because our family's large, it just took us a really long time to move in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had all, and then because of the weird power outage and stuff, because my dad's military, he was called into the base for like security, which was weird. And so he was gone a bunch. And then f- slowly but surely, like different things came on, and we were able to go out and get food and stuff like that. But like the Farm Fresh, their freezer section went out, so like a lot of that food got spoiled, and. You know that's a big problem, but uh, I, I'm actually surprised that Farm Fresh didn't have a generator because like that's a lot of money. Most places didn't back yeah, then. Yeah, um, but you know I think that actually I think that event is what caused my former employer, your current employer, to get a generator. Was, I think so because uh, they had yeah. to get that one to make sure that the building would be operational, or at least that floor of the building would be operational because they couldn't afford to be out of power for that long. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so I mean, you imagine that you're in an industry that requires you to have electricity. Uh, and now, granted, they're not, you know, your your vintage wines and stuff are not going to spoil. Most of most of the larger producers out there are going to have uh, in-ground storage uh, facilities that make it so that it's not a big deal that the power goes out. But, you know, very, very large ones, they can't put it in-ground. They do have to have refrigerated warehouses and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, you're talking about lots of money that's being caused by these power outages. Now, 
we kind of briefly touched on it, Mason, and maybe you want to get into it a little bit, is what is the reason why they were doing these power outages? Well, like, so the the big reason they were doing the power, power outages is it was a mitigation strategy by PAG&E to try to mitigate their impact on wildfires or causing wildfires as as they are called mm-hmm. in California. So their strategy was basically when the winds were up in fire season, it was to turn off the power so that the big data, tra- the big power transmission lines wouldn't have an issue. Right. And what yeah. caused sparks and stuff like that. Exactly. So yeah, so that's the, that's the deal is that like they were, they were okay. Theoretically without, without the uh, conspiracy hat on right now, their their big deal is that they are worried about causing more fires and causing more liability. Now, this to me seemed a little bit odd, and the reason it seemed a little bit odd is because I'm going to give a very, very brief summary of the next article, which is from Mises.org. Um, it's called, Having a Government-Granted Monopoly Means Never Having to Say You're Sorry. This is by uh, Justin Murray. I'm going to touch on another article by Lou... Lou uh, well, it's on lourockwell.com, but it's actually by... Uh, Dagny Taggart, uh, and so there's a little bit of stuff I'm going to borrow from that article. Both of these will be in the show notes page, so you can review it on your own. So, as as I was telling you earlier, Mason PG&E admitted their fault in uh, in the California fires uh, that the campfire is right. The, the campfire yeah, is what they, they call it, but there was actually quite a few other fires that were related. Um, they didn't admit. F- culpability to all of them but they did admit, admit culpability to that one in particular so around the same time uh that they admitted culpability their stock skyrocketed basically it tripled in value and this is this is a while ago actually so folks um what i'm talking about is an article that was written in da, 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 da. 2017, and this was actually no, 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 no. The, the one oh, that the wait, one I'm talking no, no, about no, right now, yeah, about. yeah. The one yeah, I'm talking sorry. about right now is is February this year, so February yeah. 2019. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so there's there once they once they kind of admitted culpability, they they had lost quite a bit of value. I think their stock was right around fifty dollars a share, and then it plummeted to about five dollars a share mm-hmm. when the accusations started coming out that they were responsible for these fires. Then they admitted culpability. And it skyrocketed to thirteen dollars a share, so not quite triple. Well, I would say, yeah, almost triple, but not quite. Um, so we should have bought PG&E stock. Yeah. So the reason is why did it do that? And the reason is around the same time that they admitted culpability, they also declared bankruptcy. Now, normally bankruptcy is bad for a company. It, it, it signals to the market that they've made some sort of critical flaw and that they need to reorganize in a very major way. But in the case of monopolies, things are a little bit different. So PG&E is a state, state monopoly. They're granted the authority. They're granted sole permission to provide power to a very large portion of California. And they are protected by law and through the force of government from competition. So PG&E basically declaring bankruptcy, it sheds any liability from the campfire because that is before the bankruptcy. Now, they do have to go through various processes with the state of California to shed this liability, but this is not the first time they've done it. In 2001, they also declared bankruptcy and shed $9 billion of liability and afterward just continued operations like nothing had 
nothing had happened really. They yeah, just, they like, didn't. They didn't restructure. They didn't reorganize. Exactly. They didn't. They seemingly didn't suffer any like massive economic consequence mm-hmm. of this. That's right. Bad yeah. operation. That's right. And as a result of of this, or or as part of the citation in this recent bankruptcy, they cited the fact that they're facing. I think it was thirteen billion dollars. I think it's thirteen billion dollars. I have to go back and look at the article, but it was yeah, it's it's billions, billions. Yeah, yeah, bill, billions of dollars worth of liability because of the campfire, um, which burned huge portions of California. So uh, I put this in the I put this because I thought it was a, a good quote from the article. So I'm just going to go ahead and read it um, as it is in the article, and it says, uh, "What we're seeing are a very are the very." Let me start over. What we're seeing are the very real consequences of state of the state setting up and protecting monopolies in the marketplace. PG&E has all the leverage because shutting down isn't an option. Social justice takes a back seat when people can't charge their iPhone anymore. When the only threat is putting up with temporary share price drop now and again, the possibility of changing the name on the headquarters building, state monopolies won't change themselves. So basically, what I think is what now, granted, you can go read the quote because I'm not always reading things the best way, but uh, basically, what they're saying is that all all that has to happen for PGE is maybe they'll have to change their name. Um, they're not going to get people up and outraged. Like, you know, if you use the wrong word, if you call people blacks instead of African-Americans or whatever the correct term is right now, um, you'll see a huge amount of uproar and outrage. But like when 800,000 people are without power temporarily and possibly threaten, a lot of those people's lives are threatened through the loss of power or just their livelihood is threatened. Most people don't really give a shit. But... And they can't really give that much of a shit because if their you know iPhone is out of power, then what are they going to do? Whereas, on the other hand, the stockholders of the company, like, what do they have to put up with? They they lose you know they lose some shares in their in their thing, and they and they were riding high for years, so mm-hmm. it's not like they were. And, and actually, I think PG&E is actually a dividend paying company as well. Yeah. So they so people were getting dividends. They were riding high for years. There was a lot of people who made a lot of money from them. And then you know once in a while there's a big fire and they, their price drops and you know whatever, not a big deal. But money more people who are shareholders at a later point who see what's going on and go like ah they're about to declare bankruptcy. Let me buy at five dollars. Then they get to sell at thirteen dollars and make huge huge profits. So. You know, this is this is kind of the thing. Is that this is this is what happens when people are in bed with the government? Is that this type of thing would never happen if it was any sort of private company? Companies that have to worry about bankruptcy, they don't they don't see these types of solutions. Their solutions I, are more real solutions. I don't know if I agree. Okay, I think bankruptcy, which is the state protecting mm-hmm. agencies like look at like uh sears mm-hmm. sears didn't try to innovate and just thought it could survive another bankruptcy and it doesn't seem like sears is going to make it this time and yeah. look at like uh, toys r us which was a like specifically designed strategy by the um the equity firm that basically created it loaded this operation up with debt with the idea that it basically would sell it 
you know, take it public, let it go through a bankruptcy, and then kind of collect the assets out the other side. I, that secondary part might not be true for their plan, but mm-hmm. basically they created this corporation, loaded it with debt, and then sold it off and made a huge profit. Yeah. And that's because they know that bankruptcy exists. So in my personal opinion, the idea of bankruptcy is actually a massive market distortion. Oh, it, if, oh, definitely. And you and I don't disagree on that at all. Yeah, bankruptcy yeah. is a at least in in the way that it operates under the current system is is definitely a protection. It's 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 you know we can we can declare bankruptcy as individuals, but it's it's much more difficult for us. Now, when a company declares bankruptcy, they do have some of the same consequences, but it's used and and rightfully so by you know people who are trying to navigate the the bizarre system that is set up in in the United States it is used as a tool to profit yeah and and that's the thing is like i you know it, that's what's so frustrating about this is like bankruptcy makes sense in a lot of ways but it also only like you know how many chapters of bankruptcy that are yeah. there oh yeah there's the one type of bankruptcy basically that allows you to declare bankruptcy but you're going to sell all the assets of like yeah. a fire sale. And yeah. like that's the only bankruptcy in my opinion that should exist. Right. It's like, okay, you're admitting that you're no longer going to continue operations, that you're suspending, you know, the debt payment and you're structuring a way out. But I think all that should be contractually set up. Mm-hmm. But like that's the thing that's you know, people like this whole PG and E situation. Yeah. Like, no one's looking at like and what drives me nuts about these articles is no one's talking about the absolute massive loss of economic activity that's happening in california and possibly like you know we're talking about it from wine producer standpoint but we're not talking about like the small mom and pop shop that makes cakes or something like that or sells you know all of these like operations and Mm -hmm. here are these people who are just having their livelihoods destroyed because this company doesn't have to do any of the maintenance that it's supposed to be doing can't do some of it because they can't raise prices when they need to because they're state controlled right so like there's no market incentive enforcement arm and you get these perverse incentives on the way to operate the business so like even if there were people in pg&e that were like no 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 we we're gonna run a clean shop like this the whole structure of it is not set up in a way to let them do that Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, like when Victoria and I were out in California, we ate at this little pizza restaurant in, I think it was actually, it might have been in Sonoma. It, might, it was either Sonoma or North Cal- Coast California and, um, or, or North Sonoma. But uh, the, well, actually, I'm getting these regions all mixed up. But anyways, <laughs> uh, whatever it was, like it was a tiny, tiny little pizza restaurant there. You know, they sold wine as well. And we were we stopped there ate pizza they barely spoke english and i'm pretty sure those pizza ovens ran on electricity and if yeah. they're and if they're not turning out pizzas then they're not doing business yeah the profit margins on restaurants are so razor thin now you're like destroying their stock mm-hmm. and all in the guise of not burning down the state so right. never mind the fact that like this huge entity didn't do any of the maintenance that it was supposedly supposed to do and all this stuff and then mm-hmm. they're just going to basically weasel out of everything. And then it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we can also destroy your livelihood. So that's why I think right. it's a huge conspiracy to, you know, and like, look at how many people in California are just like, oh, but it's, you know, global warming. 
Well, and, that, like and that's that. actually that's interesting because the very first article that we did, I thought that the response that, that the people they interviewed was an inappropriate response. Like when they when they were like, "Well, we all understand that we need to do this." It's like, "Yeah, you're conditioned to believe that." Yeah. You're conditioned to believe that you need to do that. You don't need to do that. They're imposing this on you. And and granted, well, you do need to do that because, you know, you have no other options because of the government, but this is this wouldn't fly. Like if Walmart's not selling potatoes, you're going to Kroger. Like this is a this is a situation where there's an artificial monopoly set up. There are different ways to deliver power, and this centralized distribution network of power is wreaking havoc on California at the moment. Like this is a huge power source for the government. And in three of these or two of these articles, I believe they they talked about Jerry Brown. Uh, how like he almost seemed giddy when he was talking about a lot of this stuff with, mm-hmm. because this was an opportunity for him to push his particular brand of environmentalism. And now he's not the, he's not the president or not the president. He's not the governor of California. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. He's not the governor of California anymore. It's Gavin Newsom now. But Gavin Even Newsom. worse. Oh, yeah. And I would agree. Like he's he's, you know, San Francisco. He's like, what is he? A nephew of Nancy Pelosi or something like that. I don't know that for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was the actual case. I, th- I think it is. I think he's. I think he's her nephew. And uh, but same thing is like he's got his own agenda. And and in monopolies in general, you know, people do have. They have a. Well, when it comes to state power in general, they have a different incentive structure than in any other sort of. Uh, natural scenario. So, like, when you look at, like, well, actually, we'll go ahead and get to the next article for this because I think it's definitely relevant because it has to do with forest fires in general. And this is from uh, 2017. She's this is his aunt by marriage, by the way. What's that? She's his aunt by marriage. Okay. All right. Yeah, and I knew I knew there was some sort of family connection. I couldn't remember what it was, but uh, you know, so governor of the largest state in the country's aunt is also the speaker of the house. So, like, you know. Take take uh, make whatever conclusions you'd like to make of that. That's not nepotism at all. Yeah, multi instance speaker of the house. Yeah, it's exactly. not like you know she was it once. She's been it multiple multiple times now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's not going anywhere either. He'll he'll keep popping up in politics. I'm sure. So I mean, he's like it, it's it's like the Pelosi's, the Newsom's, the the Kendys. Well, I mean, like even even the the two governors ago in California, the Schwarzenegger. You know, his wife was a Kennedy. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's it's like these families control ungodly amounts of power. Like, it's... Well, yeah. I mean, did you did you live in California when the rolling blackouts were having on, happening under that uh, Gary guy? Uh, oh, Gray? yeah. Uh, yeah, Jim Gray. Or not Jim Gray. Um, yeah, I do. I, I, yeah, I was. I was living there. We, we got them. Yeah. Or it was it was rolling brownouts. Roll, yeah, rolling brownouts. Yeah. Because Enron was selling power out of the state. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Like basically, they like the Republican Party used that to make Schwarzenegger governor. Yeah, and what was weird about it too is that they could have just turned on one of the nuclear power plants. Well, that's the thing is like what's weird about it. Like, so if you ever get a chance, watch Enron, the smartest guys in the room. Okay. Like, California didn't have a net power. Like, California made all the power it needed. Mm. Enron was literally just selling the power in their power market this weird thing like they created where like it allowed market power to be sold other ways okay they purposely just sold it out of california to cause the brownout to cause power prices to go back up 
Oh, that's very interesting. Like, California never had a power problem. There was no need to turn on one of these other nuclear reactors. There was, technically, yes. Um, right. You know, from you and I's perspective. But, like, California had enough power. Okay. Just the Enron market made it so that, like, it just didn't make sense to sell it to California. And they, it was this weird scheme. Right. Okay. Well, that, that, that actually yeah. makes a lot of sense. Because, yeah, we did. We had the brownouts quite a bit. Now, granted, like... I asked my grandma about this this most recent PG&E outage, and she didn't actually get an outage, but she was she was like, well, I don't really use any power anyway, so it's not a big deal. And I, <laughs> I was like, well, what do you mean? I was like, what about the AC? And she's like, yeah, I haven't really turned on the AC in like four months. I was like, grandma, it's like 90-something degrees in California. Although, like this weekend it wasn't. It was, it was down in the 70s. And she's like, yeah, you know, I'm not... I, I turn it on at night when it's colder outside, and then uh, the house cools off a lot faster, and then I just keep all the doors and windows shut during the day, and it's fine. <laughs> all right. Your grandma your grandma has hit official old people temperature. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, because, like, well, my sisters will, will, will show up there or whatever, and they'll be like, they'll. well, I, I don't know for sure if this is the way. It, it used to be this way where they'd get there, and they'd be like, it is a million degrees in this house, and grandma's like, I think it's fine. They're like, well, can I turn on the AC? And she's like, well, it costs a lot of money. And so they're like, all right, well, let's go sit out on the back porch or something like that and sit in the, in the shade. Well, that's the thing, too, about like the part of California I'm from, to go off on another tangent, is the weather there is almost always nice mm-hmm. if you're outside and in, the yeah. sh- and in the shade. It's a little bit cold at night, but... During the day, if you just go out and sh- sit in the shade, it's it's fine. Like it it might be in the eighties or or the like the low eighties in the shade, but even when it's like a hundred degrees out in the shade, it's like nice. So, yes. Also coming from the guy who moved to Texas, that's true. <laughs> so. And I actually I actually like it here too. Like when it's a hundred and something degrees out, I like it. So yeah, <laughs> like you're, uh, you're like my dad. Yeah, <laughs> like, I don't oh, know. It just doesn't get hot enough for me. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it feels nice. I like I like. I like it here better than I liked it in Virginia because it's not humid. It's just, I, I, mm-hmm. I like to be baked and then like step in the shade and be like relieved a little bit. Yeah. Um, but anyways, to, to get back to the other thing, so California's got a lot of problems, but it, it's a it's a state that I love and it's really hard for me to hate on it. But I would like them to reform so that I can move back. And one of the reforms that they could do is um, discuss in this particular article, and it's called it's also from Mises.org. It's by uh, Christopher Wesley. It's called uh, California Wildfires Don't Have to Be the New Norm. It's from 2017. So this is actually when a lot of those wildfires were going on. Um, it was a year before the campfire. Too. It, yeah, it's a year before the campfire, but it was one of the heaviest years for wildfires in California. The campfire was particularly devastating. The other wildfires were like larger land areas. Yeah, the campfire like was very specific to mm-hmm. a specific area over like a very short time. Yeah, well, you know, Victoria and I were out in California during the campfire, and um, we flew into San Francisco, and I, I feel like our vacation was, like, diminished because it was so smoky and my allergies were so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, like, every time every time I go somewhere with somebody to California, or, like, when you went there with your wife, and, and you were like, yeah, it's fine or whatever, but, like, I always feel like there was something causing it to not be good because I'm so obsessed with liking it. <laughs> but there's but I think that's just a Californian thing is that like to me it's a it's a wonderful place other than all these external factors. Uh but anyway, summarizing the article, 2017 was a particularly rough year for California as far as wildfires go. 
as of the time of this article was um, eight eight. Hold on, let me see here. There's eight thousand seven hundred seventy-one fires burned, three thousand three hundred forty-six square miles of land, and it was a cost of over thirteen billion dollars. Not to mention the you know life, the lives of people who died. I think it was like they were saying in the high eighties of people mm-hmm. who who died in these fires. Uh, so California, and that's a horrible way to go too. Like being burned alive is one of the scariest things to me. Um, well, most people die luckily, and you know this is a very morbid way to think about it. But most of those people die of smoke inhalation, and mm-hmm. they don't burn to death. That's true. Yeah. So I guess smoke inhalation, still, asphyxiation, or whatever. Still, terrible way to go. Yeah. Still, like there's no not terribleness there. Yeah. It's just right. Most of them don't go the absolute worst way imaginable. Mm-hmm. Now, the state of California has some characteristics that make it more likely uh, that they will have fires, but that doesn't mean that wildfires are inevitable, according to Christopher Wesley. Um, So, that's the article's author. Uh, Most people in the world uh, believe that government is necessary to solve inevitable problems like wildfires or other natural disasters, Uh, but the the author of this article gives the blamed... um, Oh, okay. Um, So, Wesley... I'm sorry, Christopher Wesley cites a New York Times article, and in the article that he cites, they gave they give kind of generic blames to this. Is one of them is uh, too much brush, uh, the wind, and a lot of uh, like debris that was cut down or stacked up or whatever that was uh, flammable. So dry, mm-hmm. dry. They call it dry fuel. Um, so now our our article's author says that you know this is not this is this is stuff that people commonly commonly believe are problems so like when there's a when there's a hurricane or when there is a, a wildfire an earthquake or whatever they usually go in they're like oh well this is you know this is a terrible tragedy but there's nothing we could have done about it mm-hmm. um and then except for more government right exactly except for more government they're like this is why we need more government and now uh he points out that jerry brown in this section i think what i was talking about earlier so jerry brown uh quickly jumped to climate change is the problem and that they needed more statism to uh, kind of solve the climate change issue. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and enact all these new laws that put all sorts of additional restrictions on you and that sort of stuff. But property rights do seem to have played a key role in, um, or they do seem to per, uh, provide play a key role in property destruction in general from natural disasters. So uh, one of the things that he was talking about is that California... Um, so citizens of California, they believe that, you know, the the government tells them that there's all these different things, but what the Californians need to learn is that they may be able to prevent a number of natural disaster problems by adhering to institutions that matter. And one of the institutions that matter is people owning stuff, property rights. Uh, so the, the, so the author asks us, that's Christopher Wesley. He asks us to consider, uh, land that is in the south, the southern part of the United States, is um, much less often publicly owned than in western states. So I'll go ahead and read through the percentages of these states that are owned by the federal government. California, 45.3% owned by the federal government. Oregon, 53.1% owned by the federal government. Arizona, 48.1% owned by the federal government. New Mexico, 41.8% owned by the federal government. Florida, 8.2% owned by the federal government. 
Georgia, 3.8% owned. South Carolina, 2.9% owned. uh, Alabama, 1.6% owned by the federal government. So one of the things that's interesting about this is that when uh, land is privately owned, landowners have an incentive to maintain the land. Uh, In parts of the country where land is private, it is much more common for landowners to monitor the land and clean up areas that might catch fire. It is also much more common for controlled burns to take place, especially when fire risk is high. So in places like Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, Alabama, they do a lot of controlled burns when there's a drought or when it seems like there might be a problem. With federally owned land, this is there's a whole different set of incentives. Mm-hmm. Um, so bureaucrats have their own pet goals. Um, a lot of times, the people that are that are hired by the Forestry Service and that sort of stuff are environmentalists. So they have they have like particular things they're interested in. So like the, you know the spotted newt you and I have talked about before. Yes. Um, you know maybe the spotted newt is an important animal and that's fine. I have no problem with with saving the spotted newt. But when you hire a bureaucrat whose main concern is that, they may not be interested in a lot of other things. And because the land is not theirs, they don't have an incentive. They don't have the incentive to maintain the land. They have the incentive to maintain the specific habitat of the spotted newt. Mm-hmm. Um, also because there's less liability. So if damage does occur starting on federal land and it damages private land, it's the government. So what do you, what's your recourse? Not a lot of recourse. Uh, sometimes you can be successful and sue them and get a little bit of compensation, but for the most part, they just go like, well, you know, active nature, there's nothing we can do. Uh, and then uh, when emergencies do ha- happen, bureaucrats get more money. They get more funding. So like if there's a wildfire in California and the forestry services failed to prevent it, well, they say, well, well it's because we're underfunded. And so then they end up getting more money. So what's the incentive in this case is to make sure that more fire- wildfires do happen. So that they can increase their budgets. Because every single time a wildfire happens, the Forestry Service in California and a number of other bureaucracies get more money. They don't get mm-hmm. less money for preventing it. They you know, they get they get more money for the fire actually happening. So it's a perverse incentive. Um so actually and the the um assertions that this author of the article makes are reinforced by statistics, and the statistics are that in states where there are there's more private ownership of property there's not only uh, fewer there there are not only fewer wildfires but there are fewer natural disasters in general that cause huge problems um i was well, that's the wrong way to phrase it there's less cost involved in natural disasters in states with more privately held land mm-hmm. and in states that have more federally owned land or state owned land there are more wildfires. There are more wildfires that damage private property, and there's more. There's more just in general um, natural disasters: earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So now, he, the author of this article does admit he says California and a lot of these other states do have they do have natural things about those areas that do make them more prone to things like wildfires, uh, but. As far as a percentage of private land and federally owned land, it doesn't make sense the amount of damage that is done by these wildfires when it comes to the percentage of uh, increased potential risk of the wildfires, if that makes makes sense. I have two comments on that. I can't remember my first comment, but my second comment is 
going back to the perverse incentives, when land is privately owned, mm-hmm. you are your representation of the value of the land is up to the insurance company. Mm-hmm. So the insurance company's goal is to limit the payout because right. that's how they make money. Now, obviously, we can talk about if the insurance companies were truly, you know, public private companies and didn't have all these government odd incentives, they may not do the same manipulation that we expect. Mm-hmm. You know, because like if in yada yada yada. So I think it it's possible that it's an undervaluation, and then when the federal government can say, "Oh no no no, blah blah blah, billions of dollars were destroyed," it puts a higher value on it which helps drive the budgets further that's true because they're saying look look at how much was destroyed we need more money yeah but and also i wonder if your enjoyment of california because your family did a lot of stuff on public land in Uh essence Uh um i wonder if because i'm from the east coast where so much less is public land or so much more of its military public land so you can't go on it yeah i wonder if there's some perverse incentives of california's love of california because so much of that land is basically available to them to go on to because the government holds it in some way that's that's very very possible going on it or not you know what i mean like i mean that's definitely possible yeah, you may be trespassing on federal land and it's just not labeled. But here, like out in Virginia, you, it's really obvious when it's federal land, yeah. military bases and all that stuff. Well, I mean, like nearly 50% of California, well, more than 50% is owned by the government. Uh, yeah. ne- nearly 50% is owned by the federal government. And so uh, a lot of it is, is federally owned parks that are just huge and stuff. Um, and you know what? we And we did do a lot of activity in California and camping and – to some degree, I'm very grateful that those places were preserved, but um, I don't think that I don't think the federal government was necessary to preserve them. I mean, at the same time, so like you've got, let's say, uh, um, Yosemite. Mm-hmm. You've got Yosemite, beautiful, beautiful place, right? And it, and it's been maintained very well, and it's very pristine. Uh, there, there's some things that I would, I, you know, you and I could get into it. And there's a lot of problems that I have with the way that they maintain it, but for the most part, it, it is available to everybody, and it's very. I mean, beautiful. by comparison to what it could be, <laughs> right? Exactly. So yeah. now let's look at the sister valley to Yosemite, the Hachetsi, I believe it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, it is all underwater right now, as mm-hmm. a result of the federal government. Now, if the federal go- or not the federal government, the state government, because they wanted to dam it and make it a reservoir for San Francisco. Now, there is different ways to think about that. Is one way you could think about it and be like, thank God there were activists that preserved the the Yosemite National Park from. Uh, well, and actually, the federal government's the one who came into Yosemite. It was, um, I think, it was Muir was his name. John Muir is he? Mm-hmm. He petitioned Roosevelt, I believe, to preserve that that park. And it's a beautiful park, and I'm very glad that it's preserved. But on the other hand, it was the state of California that dammed the other park and mm-hmm. and put it underwater. So in both cases, there was no private access. And in both cases, the land was not owned by the federal government or the state government. It was owned by two different indigenous peoples who had homesteaded the land, very clearly homesteaded the land. They were farming in the area, and they were using it for hunting wild game, and they were clearly settled in the area. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, they were pushed off of the land. One was dammed, and one was made into a park. 
So who's at fault here? It, it is the libertarian would say that the, that the people who owned it didn't want it dammed. Now, there may have been economic incentives in both cases where both of them would have ended up underwater. And I'm okay with that. It, it would have been unfortunate. You know, my fourth great uncle is the first one who climbed Half Dome, hmm. um, which is in Yosemite. And uh, he's got a book about it. It's really cool, actually, uh, if anybody ever wants to look it up. It was uh, Themister Proctor, who's also a great artist. And his uh, his um, sculpture of uh, Robert E. Lee here in Dallas was taken down. Is now in storage, which is unfortunate. But um, he was a great sculptor as well. And um, But anyway, so all that aside, before it was a park and before all that sort of stuff, he scaled Half Dome when it was just kind of the wilderness in the middle of nowhere. And on the flat side, not on the not on the curved side, on the hard side. <laughs> but, uh, although what's always been weird about that, uh, this is a side note, is that in the book he mentions that there's already there's already like screws and stuff that are in the wall that were left by mm-hmm. a sailor who did it a long time ago. Hmm. And I'm like, so how are you the first if some sailor did it before you? <laughs> and so like I don't know that aside, but or maybe the sailor didn't make it all the way up, but he made it all the way up. To the top, but he's also a great sculptor. He he did he did um, the Pony Express rider, which is in I think San Francisco, Sacramento. I think it's in, in Sacramento, and he did the Robert E. Lee statue that used to be here in Dallas, but is now in storage. And he did the uh, like the riding ponies or whatever that's down in Austin, and a, hmm. a lot of very famous sculpt sculptures. Western. He was a he was a Western guy. Like a, he did a lot of Western art and stuff like that, and mm-hmm. stuff, like a frontiersman, and. Uh, but anyways, like what well, that that's totally a side note of it is that like there's a lot of cases in California where they're like, well, thank God the government stepped in and preserved this, and it's like, well, they they preserved it by removing that land from somebody who already owned it, whether it be natives or whether it be white folk, mm-hmm. and um, and and so like that's that's one of the things is that like you know what what is it that they say in uh, in um, Braveheart is they say that like uh, history is written by those who have hanged heroes. Yeah, or and, something like that. Yeah, something along those lines, and and that's kind of what happened with the history of California. Is California was largely owned, and there was a lot of indigenous people that owned it. There was a lot of prospectors who owned it, and other people. And there was a lot of cronies who owned stuff out there too. I mean, it was it was not. I'm not saying that like this was a pristine past or anything like that, but you can sort out who owns stuff. And once you sort out who owns stuff, you're going to be much better served by those people owning it and selling it and things changing hands than by allowing the federal government who has a very complete uh, perverse incentive when it comes to land maintenance. They do a very bad job of it. And the statistics show that they do a very bad job of it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like I guess the point of this article is that wildfires are – they may not be able to completely be prevented, but you can reduce the number of wildfires by quite a bit by just allowing California to be privately owned by yeah. individual people. Just like the way that Georgia, which Georgia is a much wetter state, and that's you know fine to, to make that argument, but we can look at the way that, that people who own land in Georgia maintain their land, and they go out and they clear brush that is a problem. They go out and they bur- they do control burns to make sure that like brush that is building up gets burned out and in a co- controlled way so it doesn't spread because they're also liable for that that problem when it spreads. Um, and and to your point as well, the insurance companies won't insure property that is a fire hazard. Exactly. So now 
one of the things that you don't remember because you didn't live here at the time, but I've told you about it several times, is when they set the Great Dismal Swamp on fire in a oh, controlled yeah. burn, mm-hmm. and they failed to maintain the burn correctly, and they got kind of out of control, and we had smoky environment, which wasn't anything like what you know California had to deal with or does deal with and anything like that. But I, we I were actually, so- you know what? I kind of remember that. Maybe it was another time, but isn't isn't the swamp still on fire right now? It's just like on fire underground. Maybe uh, I think that's just kind of a thing that happens out there. But yeah, basically, we were very derisive of the government for setting the swamp on fire. Um, so uh, I think that's a pretty good episode. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good place yeah. to wrap up. Yeah, so kind of like to I guess hone in on the key points is that. You know, this is these these PG and E has caused a lot of problems for California, and but the main problem is, in in almost every way that you look at it, at least from Masons in my perspective, is that it's a problem with the government. Is that you have massive amounts of California controlled by the state and federal government, and then you also have an electric company that has a total monopoly and no incentive to improve safety standards. Exactly. So, uh, all right, and my dogs are are starting to argue with each other. So I think that that's uh, that's them that's them growling me on the way out. <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, let's go and do like quick plugs for our, us, and then we'll go ahead and tell everybody to stay free. Uh, so you can follow us on tastinganarchy.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Tasting Anarchy. You can follow Childerberg. If you want to send us an email, tastinganarchy at gmail.com. All right. Uh, I think that's it. So everybody stay free. Stay free. Drinking Afghans and calling for more. Drinking wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, you to drink wine. Wine, you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Drink it, man. Oh, give me some of that slop. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peterstown, buy some wine and pass it around. Age runs up to 49. All them cats, they love sweet wine. Drinking wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Wine, wine, wine. Elderberry. Wine, wine, wine. Cherry, cherry. Wine, wine, wine. Blackberry. Wine, wine, wine. Horton sherry. Wine, wine, wine. Oh, pass that bottle to me. Now down on Gilsey at Willie's Den. He wasn't selling but American gin. One soldier wanted a bottle of wine. He hit that cat for a dollar and a dime. I drink a wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Now I got a nickel. Have you got a dime? Let's get together and get some wine. Somebody's fifth and somebody's fourth. When you get together, you're doing things smart. Drinking wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine.